Good morning and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, Today I want to talk about um, PC death. Uh, Over the past uh, weekend I've actually had... uh, we got two pretty eventful sessions, where uh, one of which where two uh, player characters died, uh, and one where uh, there's a. I mean, it really could have been. Uh, we had all the party members taken out, and then I uh, elected to have everyone take uh, taken hostage, um, which also was supported by the mechanics of that particular game. So I guess I kind of want to talk about, um, you know, first off, uh, the uh, implicit and explicit uh, rules for mortality that our games tell us. Uh, and uh, how to approach that. I, there's some really helpful advice in um, the Game of Thrones, or not Game of Thrones, the uh, Song of Ice and Fire role-playing game. So maybe I'm, um, that's the way I'm going to structure things. First off, I'm going to talk about the uh, mechanics, uh, uh, and or rather I'm going to talk about the um, explicit and the implicit uh, kind of um, assumptions regarding lethality, uh, particularly player character lethality, that our games have, and uh, how that... Um, I don't know, I mean, like, how to make sure that everyone is, I guess, on the same page with respect to that. So let's uh, dive into the episode. All right, so um, before we dive into this episode, let me just give a, a word of, um, of maybe warning of, of what to expect here. Um, th- I did not have a clear thesis uh, in mind, or th- clear conclusion in mind, at least, when I uh, launched into this episode. I really wanted to see what you know, where kind of my mind took me, um, because I, you know, it's been something that's been weighing on my mind, and often I find it's helpful to talk them through. As we go through the episode, though, with each uh, segment, I find that I'm straying a little more uh, than I did, and in the third episode, there is a whole diversion where I'm talking more about random encounters, and I, I'm not 100% sure it's it's coherent. Um, <laughs> so, if you find that um, it isn't coherent, I'm, I'm, I apologize. Uh, I what I I was on the fence of as whether uh, whether or not to actually post this episode, but I think there's at least some good food for thought in there for things to consider uh, in amongst my sort of ambling exploration uh, of um, of death in um, and the different uh, mechanics, implicit and explicit that uh, that that sort of inform how you. Uh, understand death and how it's presented and how it's uh, how frequently it occurs in in games so just be be aware that as you're going through this this you know um, that third section in particular it may require a little bit of um well if it feels like it doesn't make sense to you it may be that it just because it doesn't make sense but um but anyway uh i again i think that there is i still i decided to to post it because i think there are some some useful hopefully some useful uh thoughts at least to get your you know to um to get your uh uh your mind going um and I mean, if as with uh, more so than I think with with most episodes too, if you do have thoughts on this as well, I'd be really happy to hear them because you can tell I think from the episode that I'm still not I'm coming to terms with how to best uh, approach mortality and prepare for it. Uh, you know, for for my games and to recognize what lethality means in in some of these different games uh, that I uh, that I run. So anyway, um, apart from that, uh, I'll stop with the uh, the intro warning here. I hope you enjoy the episode. So I guess uh, to start with, maybe let's talk about what kind of uh, what kind of DM I am. I, I mean, I don't fancy myself a, uh, a killer DM you know, per se. Uh, I don't really typically have a pretty big body count behind me in terms of uh, player characters. And part of that might be because of the games that I've uh, I've run before. 
Um, and the changes that I make to some of the other, like the more old school games that I, I have been running over the last year to make uh, for a little more cushion so players, um, player characters aren't necessarily just, you know, dropping because of a bad dice roll. It's, it's really, you know, it, it needs to be more a series of events that, uh, that lead to that. And that's usually uh, characters running out of Astonishing Fortune and also, you know, maybe picking a fight uh, up that's above their... Um, you know, weight class, uh, and then sometimes not, or not reading a fight properly. Um, and, um, and then I mean, just like really a bad series of dice rolls, which can happen in any kind of game. But, uh, over the last year, I actually have had about, um, I think it's six character deaths in total. I've had one, uh, death in our Barrow Maze campaign. Um, and that was a, that was an interesting one, uh, in the sense that, um, what, what had happened, I guess at the time, we're playing um, Greg Gillespie's really awesome Barrow Maze um, uh, campaign, Barrow Maze Complete, using the Pathfinder 2nd Edition playtest. And um, I've, I've talked on uh, previous podcasts about how there was a problem of uh, ludonarrative dissonance uh, between the story we were trying to tell in the game and the quote-unquote story that the... Uh, the game mechanics of Pathfinder 2nd were, were telling. You know, it's, it's not a fault to either... Pathfinder Second or to Barrowmaze that uh, that it they just were not pairing together well. They were at odds with each other in their sensibilities. Um, but the um, in any event, this the the particular character death actually had nothing to do with the uh, the rules mechanics. Oh well, no, it didn't. I mean, it, it really didn't because of um, uh, what happened was we in at this point the characters were about third or maybe fourth level and um the they had an encounter where um they uh they had previously encountered these things these giant toads they knew how dangerous they were like one of them could give a good run for an entire party and uh, they were at a point where they were exploring somewhere a random encounter came up and it was a shit ton of toads like i rolled a, a maximum amount of toads maximum toads is uh as they say and um uh, as no one says i guess but Anyway, the um, so there was these toads coming in. It was telegraphed to the players, and then what ended up happening is one of the players, his character decided to stick behind, which his and his character had been played to that point as very impulsive. So his half brother, a paladin, decided, shit, I can't run, so he stayed behind. And then as soon as six toads came out of the mist, then uh, they could not uh, they could not run, uh, or they they turn. I guess they could run. The half orc turned and booked. The paladin, being you know in heavy armor, was moving a lot slower. So, toads go; they can leap pretty darn far. And next thing you know, we hear this crunching and screaming, uh, and the paladin's gone. And uh, I didn't even bother to roll through it. I just said, "Okay, well, what are you playing next?" Uh, because you know, my my thinking was I didn't want to go through the uh, the basically like you know torture porn kind of thing of going through. The, the character was whatever level he was, I think second or third, and I think that the Toads were challenge rating two or three as well. So imagine, you know, fighting a thing that's designed to challenge uh, four player characters, have six of them all on you at once. So I just said, all right, well, this he will just die off screen because I don't really want to, you know, I don't want to go through the exercise of, of um, uh, you know, of rolling through just to, to brutalize your character. Um so that was our, our first death of the... No, it wasn't. It wasn't. There was one death before that, too, in Shadow of the Demon Lord. 
So pre previously to that, before we started playing that campaign, we had been playing Shadow of the Demon Lord, and the characters got up to around... If you're not familiar with Shadow of the Demon Lord, it's a really great uh, dark fantasy... Actually, it's a horror dark fantasy game uh, created by Robert Schwab, uh, the guy behind a um, bunch of other really awesome games, like uh, two editions of D&D, &D, fourth and fifth, and um, he also did the uh, Green Ronin um, Song of Ice and Fire, a role-playing game. But anyway, he... Um, so uh, that that particular game we had uh, it was actually a friendly fire situation and the one player was engaged with or two players were on the back of a dragon fighting with some big bad and one of the characters got knocked off he was playing effectively like a monk and he had this ability to kind of soar through the air and come slamming down and do a big AOE so he did that as he's falling you know because the fall would have been probably quite lethal leaps up comes smashing down not realizing that his very heavily injured ally was caught within the AoE of that, and he died. Uh, so we had a, 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 a character death there too, and the interesting thing with that one was that if the player had not, um, if the player, uh, what do you call it, uh, of that monk had realized what was going to happen, he never would have done it, uh, because he would have metagamed and said like, well, no, I'll just, I'll do it something else. But the heat of the moment element or the heat of the moment nature of, of that reaction it felt very very real and the player of the character who died was totally fine with it he's like no this makes sense this is exactly what would have you know you're fighting on the back of a dragon like people are you know it's, it's an insanely dangerous uh, activity of course things are going to go wrong so we had that death as well too so that's two um, this past weekend I had two characters die in my astonishing one of my astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea games uh, so that brings us up to four, and then I had actually seven. God, God, I've got more blood on my hands than I thought. Um, this past weekend we had um, uh, three. They didn't die, but uh, they were taken prisoner, um, and that was in my Starfinder campaign. My Starfinder game playing through the against the Aeon Throne campaign. The players just got a bunch of bad rolls at the start of the um, encounter. Uh, I got some terrific rolls. We like opened up with a crit, uh, so you know. The players were put on their back foot kind of right from the get-go, and then by the time the big bad... There wasn't optimal tar, um, uh, strategy used either, I don't think, because the characters were a little spread out, and then um, the main, the big bad took advantage of that and just, you know, um, took down one, and then, you know, trotted down, took out another one, and then trotted down, took another third one. And it, it's interesting having two of those things happen in the same weekend um, because... It really, I mean, there, there's a different, um, there's different sensibilities, obviously, between the kind of swords and sorcery setting of uh, uh, Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea and the, um, what do you call it, and the more Star Wars-esque, you know, setting of science fantasy Star uh, Starfinder. So I was thinking about those those two kind of developments um, more this uh, this weekend. Uh, and what I kind of came to, I mean, I, I, there's a couple of things that I thought were interesting about it. For one, um, you know, as I said, like, I'm not really typically a, like, killer DM. Even when I run stuff that's, like, horror-focused, like a Call of Cthulhu or Delta Green or whatever, you know, I often have a conversation with my players beforehand and say, okay, so are we, do we want to play this with, you know, um the Cthulhu, like the Lovecraftian kind of style thing where the expectation is your characters are going to go insane at some point um, or are we going to play it more of kind of um, like 
um, you know, like a TV show where there's going to be a series of ongoing investigations you're going to be involved in, but the players will, while they will suffer in the course of it, they're not going to be, you know, murdered or driven insane or something like that. And more often than not, you know, we, that's kind of how we played. Um, I mean, that not more often than that is, that's how players always preferred, uh, for the ones that I've, I've played with. And the, um, you know, the, uh, I guess but like Pulp Cthulhu is a product that, that has come out in the last little while and it really kind of reflects the way that I think a lot of us played Cthulhu anyway which is to say like you know bigger cushion for hit points and um, at least those of us who, who wanted didn't want to play you know high mortality um, games and it's not to say the characters couldn't die necessarily or couldn't go insane it's just that they're giving them a little more you know um, it, it's less of a just like a random vagary, some some you know unforeseen thing that that uh, kills them, or or they just get a bad roll on, on their sanity check or something like that. Um, but uh, but yeah, but I mean, whenever I play those games, that's that's the conversation I've had, and I actually in, in recent years, and the um, the reason uh, I started doing that was because of a, a good bit of advice from the Song of Ice and Fire role playing game, where you know the obviously you know George R R Martin's fictional world of Westeros has an insanely high body count. But even there, I mean, I think that um, for the most part, there is, there's a clear um, cause, you know, for, for sort of those deaths. I mean, even when there's betrayal at the, you know, surprise betrayal at at the Red Wedding or, you know, of uh, Ned Stark, you know, I mean, spoilers for a 15 or 20 year old book, but, um, and a, you know, insanely popular TV series. Uh, But, uh, but anyway, the, um, yeah, I mean, that, that game does have a high body count, but, you know, what's right for a book isn't always necessarily what's right for a role-playing game. So they're, uh, they encourage the, the um, DMs to talk to the players and talk to the group to come up with a decision of how they want to approach it. You know, do they want to have that, you know, do, do they want to have plot immunity for, for the characters? And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not familiar enough with that game to know whether it's necessary just because of, by virtue of how deadly the game can be, and the game mechanics can be, but I mean, for games like Shadow of the Demon Lord, like Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, uh, like most basic, you know, or OSR uh, D&D uh, games, um, the games are insanely lethal. Like, it's it's really, uh, you are genuinely taking your life in your hands if you're getting involved in combat because it can really go against you. And... Um, I, uh, I I don't want there to be like when I run those games. I just don't I just don't like um, having such a ridiculous uh, you know razor thin line between uh, and ridiculous is a pejorative. I mean I I just don't I don't enjoy having you know characters that close to death all the time with crap hit points and no mitigating factors and just like and I mean the reason being is because I do want to see progress for these characters. I want to see them challenged, but um, on a more selfish note too, like I don't want to have to be quite as cautious with my uh, adventure design and my encounter design. I want to be able to throw stuff at the players that will genuinely challenge them and not be worried about like, well shit I just rolled, you know, a hit with both the claws and the bite on my monster and you just took you know, uh, 20 points of damage so you're dead. I want there to be some kind of uh, way to, to mitigate it and the uh, way I've done that in in um, actually both uh, my um, Astonishing, uh, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game and my uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord game was to give a meta currency that the players could earn or they could spend on each other or whatever. That was effectively like, you know, action points or feat points or plot points or whatever you want to call them in your game. I call them Astonishing Fortune in uh, in my uh, Ash games. 
Um, and to be honest, that's kind of how I refer to them now in other games when I'm referring to similar meta currencies anyway, because I like the name. Um, but the, um, the way that what that does is it doesn't prevent the characters from dying necessarily. It just gives them one get-out-of-jail-free card, you know, and then the players also have to come up with some kind of narrative explanation for why they have, if, it's, if they're spending it on someone else, they have to explain why they've you know, how they've intervened in that way. And it makes for a lot of fun, play, intrusive player role-playing and, and where they're, you know, engaging with the fiction and they're giving descriptions of how the scene or whatever else has changed by virtue of their spend, uh, spending the Astonishing Fortune. And um, interestingly, so the two character deaths that we had on the weekend, those happened, and so not just two characters, we had two character deaths, we also had a henchman um, or hench dog uh, die, and we had a hench mule die too so and the players unfortunately left all their stuff behind too like they had their whatever weapons they were fighting their enemies with because they were kind of set upon at night and it was just a you know just very similar to the starfinder encounter it was just a series of really unfortunate roles from the get-go against a pretty deadly you know potentially deadly adversary uh this particular adversary is it was um something called spore men which basically are like shambling you know delivery vectors for russet mold and the um, the I love them, and they're they're part of my uh, what do you call it? Uh, they're part of the sort of uh, running one of the running subplots in our astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea game because they've been showing up quite a bit, and the NPCs that people have met have uh, talked about them. You know, um, uh, playing a, that, that that this time of year is what brings you know kind of that that the spores into season and their. Uh, you know, this, this plague is sort of starting to make its way across the uh, region of Tula. But uh, one of the... Um, uh, so it was kind of neat that this was the thing that they faced. But anyway, the so what ended up happening is just uh, the, the one character who was keeping watch was a, a barbarian-class uh, character, which had a very low chance of getting surprised, lowest in the game, but unfortunately got surprised. So... The monsters were able to get into a very, very close range, and then I think they lost initiative first round too. So, the spore things were able to get their, you know, their big spore explosion clouds off, which shoot up some of the metal resources because people were failing their saves, uh, and the, the characters did not have other resources to deal with um, disease, you know, or or poison, uh, which is uh, one of those two things is what deals with these spores, and um, then the players. Uh, just had really crappy rolls, and I got an insane crit uh, on one that did like 24 points of damage uh, on one uh, player character. So just things did not go the, the player's way, and that that the, the uh, difference in outcome in those games was interesting because in Starfinder, uh, Starfinder, for those who aren't familiar, does this thing where to capture kind of the high-action you know, um, you know, uh, tactical combat that you would expect from kind of a science fantasy game, they use uh, two different kinds of effectively like hit points. There's hit points, which are just like in other games where they're slow, they, re they represent your actual like real physical damage, um, you know, broken bones, sprained wrists, things like that, you know, gunshot wounds, stab wounds. But um, the uh, they also have access to something called stamina points. Stamina points are kind of like the bumps and bruises that you get in the course of, of you know, getting in a scrap. Um, you're not really, when, when, once you finish a, a combat, 
uh, you are able to spend a third kind of meta resource called a uh, resolve point. And resolve points are used to recover hit point or recover stamina points to uh, con- to uh, trigger certain powerful um, uh, special abilities from your class, and also to trigger. Uh, you know, to prevent you from dying. If you get it, if you get zero hit points, what you do is you spend one quarter of your resolve points rounding down and uh, rounding down, rounding up. Maybe it's rounding down. I think it's rounding down. Minimum one. You spend that, and then you automatically stabilize. You're not dying anymore. It doesn't take an action or anything like that. It just automatically happens. So, um, so long as you're sitting on one resolve point then even if you're taking down to zero hit points, you're going to stabilize in your round. And then someone actively has to go over and, like, you know, shiv you or something like that to, to get you to die. So the game, uh, you know, assuming that you're not blowing through down, you know, all of your resolve points, you're leaving one of them. And characters generally have between, like, four or five uh, resolve points, uh, at least at lower levels. You know, you've got those, that cushion there. You've got that cushion, so even if you drop down, you don't have to worry about running over and applying bandages and crap like that just to prevent the character from dying they'll they will automatically stabilize and that makes sense in the in the sensibilities of the setting and um you know i mean and for for that particular game it's in the pathfinder vein so like you know pathfinder has a little bit smoother or a more gentle um uh dying rules than say you know uh ash um so you contrast that with um i guess i mean you know you contrast that with with the ash game and what you end up with is um, a pretty marked contrast between what the game assumes happens when you go down. If you lose a combat in Ash, you die because you're probably going to be dying. You're probably going to be below zero um, hit points. You know, once you hit minus, I think it's minus four hit points, then you start trickling out. You know, bleeding out one by one by one until you hit whatever it was minus uh, ten, I think, uh, maybe, and then you die. And uh, that is not the case with, you know, you contrast that with Starfinder. Starfinder expects that you're going to stabilize. So either you, you know, when your enemies or your allies rather defeat the enemies and, and you win the fight, then they'll help get you back up again. Or you will, um, you know, you'll all lose and then your enemies will take you hostage or something like that, you know, to be in order for them to do the monologuing. And um, it's neat. I mean, like that, that I think is really interesting because I mean, dying in Starfinder really does seem to be something you really, really need to work for, you know, like you really need to, to screw things up in a royal way and have, uh, be in a situation where there is no, you know, there's no way the DM can explain, uh, you as being taken hostage rather than just being outright killed. You know, um, the, um, in this particular adventure, I had a, a justification for it, but like say these, that my players were fighting some, you know, mindless animal. Boy, I'd have a much harder time explaining why they didn't die, you know, in that one. But um, anyway, uh, so that's, that's um, you know, an, I think an interesting way that there are explicit things about the um, the rules that tell you, you know, what how lethal that game is going to be. And then you got to make a decision as to whether you want to keep it that way or whether you want to have ways to mitigate it. Um if the players also, um, I'm going to draw on someone else's, uh, my buddy Matt, uh, who runs, he used to run the uh, Jowson's Den uh, YouTube channel. He now runs the uh, Grim and Perilous YouTube channel. Um, Matt t- told me about a recent experience he had with uh, running um, Forbidden Lands with some players. And the players were all very, you know, very much m- uh, more familiar with the Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition 
game. So uh, for fifth edition, it's it is pretty hard to, to you know you really got to work to especially once they get some levels uh, to kill uh, player characters. They're a lot more durable than what uh, say the um, you know the characters from Ash are, um, or like GURPS, say or Rollmaster. You know, um, so but he was running the game, and then uh, they had it. Forbidden Lands is a pretty lethal game. Like I mean, it, it's not. Um, it is uh, trying to capture in a new you know, with a new set of mechanics and new kind of interesting uh, dice pool mechanics, um, it's trying to capture that old school style of play. And, but in, in particular, you know, part of that is lethality. You can starve to death, you can, you know, get, you can die in combat. Uh, and uh, there isn't plot immunity for characters. And two of the players, uh, I can't remember if it was one or two players, but he had one or two players die, or characters die, not the players. Players are just fine. Two, one or two characters die in it, and the it led to like a two hour. You know, I think Matt um, generously described it as you know two hour conversation, but I definitely got the sense from the tone it was a two hour bitch fest about how in D anD D this wouldn't have happened, and you know like if the players went in expecting an experience like D anD D, then fair enough. I mean that that's that's unfortunate that there was a um, you know there was a misunderstanding on the part of the players, um, but. You know, uh, that's it's not it's not that it's not D and D like that. That's the whole point of playing uh, that kind of game is that you're not playing with the same sort of sensibilities and rules and and whatever. Like it's a different it's got a different set of rules to it. And by rules, I don't mean the like the mechanics that dictate task resolution and stuff like that. I mean like the assumptions of what play is going to be like in that particular game. You know, and in that kind of game, it's lethal. You know, and uh, I think that. You cannot trust when there is uh, game mechanics that are explicitly lethal. You still need to kind of uh, bring it to the player's attention. It's it's not at worst you're reminding them of things that they already know. At best, uh, you're going to be re- you know helping them avoid having a, a consequence, an outcome that they will not enjoy or that is contrary to their expectations. If the players decide to forge forward with it, if the players ignore that and decide to go on and still throw themselves into the situation where they may die. And I don't mean guaranteed death like, you know, our brave paladin standing against six giant toads. I more mean, um, you know, where the, the way it is in a lot of old school games where, like, it's a crapshoot. You know, you may have a, a, a fight go in your favor. You may just, you know, um, we had a, a, a fight, uh, a two-stage fight, basically, two sessions. We fought this over where a bunch of players in my Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game uh, Reavers of Tula, the, my, my main kind of game for Ash, the one that's been going longest, they besieged a castle. And the first time they did it, man, they just kicked the shit out of the beastmen. Like 30 beastmen. They just annihilated them, and then we ended with them kind of, you know, uh, having seized the, the, the uh, courtyard, and then they were going to we were gonna see what they were going to do next. Well, we came back for the next session, and in that session, um, they nearly all died because of uh, javelin fire. The the, the, the Beastmen had retreated into the keep and were then from the ramparts tossing down these massive oversized javelins. And um, it was brutal. Like, you know, the it turned on a dime of just them being, you know, dominant in the fight uh, in one circumstance that suddenly just not being able to, um, you know, not really being able to, to respond to what they were, uh, what was being done to them. Uh, they didn't have enough stuff to block line of sight. Uh, they didn't have anything to really respond in a meaningful way because they were trying to, you know, rescue a bunch of hostages. Um, 
yeah, so I mean, it was uh, you know, it, it was a good example of just how quickly things can turn in an old school game. I guess I mean that could probably happen in any kind of game, but in old school, because your hit points are lower, um, I think it's just a much much more of a razor thin margin between you know uh, a um, a game that goes really well and a game that goes really poorly, and that's where that astonishing fortune really does come in handy. Because I think in, in that session, nobody had any left. Normally, there's a few points left over at the end that get converted over into XP. But at the end of that session, uh, everyone had spent all of theirs just to try and you know live through that, uh, that encounter. And that's exactly what it should have felt like, right? Uh, gives it a really dangerous and threatening, you know... Um, uh, real, I mean, it gives it the appropriate level of, of, of tension uh, without, you know, killing a bunch of, of characters. So... Um, but I mean, you know, all the players in that game, they know what the um, what the rules are. They know that it's a deadly game and that characters can die in it, uh, as do the ones that played in my... Um, I mean, to be honest, all of my games right now, everyone knows that death is a possibility. If the dice, you know, if circumstances conspire to uh, to work out that way, then that's, uh, you know, that's just the way things are going to go. Um, so that, I guess, is some of the more explicit. I'm just using um, Starfinder and Ash as the two exemplars here, but you can extrapolate that to other games that you're familiar with. You know, like the West End, uh, the West End, the Fantasy Flight Star Wars. I think that has a lot. That's a lot harder to kill characters than that. Uh, there's a lot more um, possibility for cushion and and whatnot. Um, whereas like GURPS, GURPS is um, whew, boy that can really turn very quickly on uh, on characters. It's one of the reasons I love that game, and one of the reasons I love the Star Wars game too. Right? It's it's a matter of having the right tool, you know, for the right job, as it were. But um, you can extrapolate those express mechanical implications about death um, across the different um, you know games that you're familiar with as well. I want to now turn to talk about implicit. Things that aren't set out in the rules, but things that are implicit in the in the assumptions of the game and how it's played. So let's transition to that. So that's the stuff about my thoughts on uh, the rules mechanics and how that informs um, you know mortality in, in your games. Let's talk about the implicit rules that'll be in there. So, uh, for instance, um, if you there are decisions that you can make in terms of structuring your campaign setup and how you, you know, everyone understands that you're going to go through that material, that will um, inform the player's uh, response to the to uh, lethality and to uh, character deaths. Um, for instance, in an adventure path, if you're running a pre-made adventure path or one of these mega campaigns uh, published by uh, Wizards, I think that the assumption is, is that the source of continuity is the group passing through that story, not any individual character. It isn't focused on any individual character's, you know, uh, overall experience and, and whatever. Um, there is a narrative that your character, your players will all go through, and the characters may be different, you know. So whether you have characters die in Module 1 or Module 4 of your six-part adventure path, uh, you're still going to overall be passing through that. So the assumption is, is that I think or what's implicit in that is that whether your character dies or not is not really important for the, the the overall arc of the story. Similarly, if you're running one of those longer adventures from D&D, like, um, what is it? Uh, um, not Against the Giants, the um, Thunder King's Wrath, I think it's called, uh, or Curse of Strahd, or, um, you know... Um, uh, what is it? Something in the abyss. This is how little I, I give a shit about those. I own all of them, but I can't remember the damn names of them. 
Um, but all, all of those, those, those are long, you know, long-term campaigns that are designed to take you out uh, or expand your characters for over a series of levels, you know, usually around 10-ish. Um, and th- those likewise, too, they don't, they don't the cam- story doesn't end when your character dies, you know. Uh, so the assumption there is that this, there is a path through the story it's going to be the group that makes their way through it. So you individually will not, um, you know, uh, will not, uh, um, your death doesn't mean, you know, uh, much for the overall campaign. Uh, characters and players may react to that, obviously, uh, but it doesn't prevent, you know, it doesn't have the, the, the consequential uh, impact on the passage of the story the way that, uh, say like you know a character's a main character's death in a TV series would, right? Um, because you're still going towards the same point. Um, and uh, in like homebrew games where you're just kind of playing through campaigns and and you're kind of going where you go, um, then you, well then actually before I get into that, let's talk about uh, I mentioned Barrel Maze. Barrel Maze is another thing too where it's the campaign like the the exploration of the. Why you know the dangers of the Barrow Moor and locating the entrance to the Barrow Maze, and then exploring uh, the Barrow Maze itself—that is the focus of the campaign, and or at least the the product uh, as written. And if um, if you diverge from that, if you make the game about something else, that's fine. But the product is intended to be the the sort of through line for all of the players. Uh, and their characters, whether there's one character or they keep replacing characters because of character deaths. So the, um, yeah, so I mean, I guess in a similar way, while the Barrel, uh, you know, Barrel Maze is an unstructured product more than what, uh, there's not a strict, you know, passage through story, it is a passage through a physical location, and that is the focus. So whether characters die or not, it doesn't really matter. You're you're still going to be making yeah, everyone's going to be making their way through the same material. And you contrast that with a homebrew game where you're making up the campaign as you go and the death of characters can have a substantial uh, effect on your on the on the arc of your of your story. This is in, in particular the case where you um, uh, you know it's it's not like a dungeon crawl type thing where it's easy to grab a new character and throw them in, uh, or if you've made the story very personal about the characters. You know, in my uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord game that I mentioned where the uh, the one character died, uh, the real challenge with that one, like that, that game fell apart about two sessions afterwards, and it wasn't necessarily because the character died. Um, it was partly because, you know, we... Well, I know it really was, actually. So the, that character death, let's use that as an exemplar. That character death was uh, one of two Minotaur brothers. One of the guys was basically they were playing kind of a like yin and yang, you know, Minotaurs. One of them was playing in, uh, and actually this campaign has a bit more nuance to it because we started running it using uh, AD, sorry, D and D fourth edition. I, I was in a kick to really revisit a nostalgia kick to revisit D and D fourth. So I uh, we all rolled up characters for D and D fourth and we started playing uh, through it in that way, and. Um, the two uh, two of the players made uh, characters who were brothers. Uh, one was a white furred uh, minotaur who had um, what was his class called an ardent, which is kind of like a um, 
the psychic version of a leader class, kind of like a psychic uh, cleric, if you will, who man- manipulates like emotion and can sense emotion or emotion rather, not motion. Uh, and the other character was playing a barbarian, like this wild, you know, black furred, raging barbarian um, uh, minotaur. And they played off each other really, really well. And then when we made the switch over to uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord, it was, you know, it, it was even better, to be honest. Like, the, the game, that game is was really awesome. It really suited the, the uh, particular story we were telling. But, uh, and for those who are unfamiliar with Shadow of the Demon Lord, one of the things that it assumes is that you are going to be playing through, um, you know, you have... Uh, basically 11 levels. You're at zero and you go up to 10 and then you'll be playing 11 adventures. You play 11 adventures and then you're, you're done and you gain a level after every adventure and that's that. Uh, so the game was, um, yeah, I mean like it, it was going really, really well. And because you're playing only for, you know, for that long, um, I really made the story uh, about the characters. Like everyone had a real clear kind of role in there. There were behind the scenes, you know, power players that had tapped into these characters and we had great, you know, there, it was really building towards something. And then suddenly one of these characters that we were building up to be, you know, leading the forces of heaven in a couple of levels, I think we were level seven when the, when the character died, well, he died. And then the other character, uh, his brother went berserk and ended up fading away uh, into another dimension. And the reason being is because we uh, uh, we'd had this thing where there, I set up a, a kind of a, a little um, trick in the game so that the characters had been subject to some kind of magical mishap. So at times their characters would fade out of existence into this pocket dimension. And that's how I explained absences. Like I was kept on going and. I felt, I don't know why, but I felt the need to really come up with this elaborate cockamamie explanation for why certain players weren't there and why their characters weren't there. So I didn't have to have anyone, you know, running them. Um, so the character, and then that player, the player of the black uh, furred Minotaur, the Berserker, he uh, he couldn't, he suddenly had, you know, circumstances change in his life and he wasn't able to make as many sessions. So we, because of the loss of those two characters, um, the player who was playing his brother, the white-furred Minotaur, he was still ready to play. He was still willing and able. But we had to interject this brand new character who didn't have any of the backstory in the campaign. And in that camp, in that game, things are so, um, you know, compressed in terms of the storytelling because you know you're only going to go those, uh, you know, for that length of period. Um it was weird to try and come up with another a reason why this new uh, character would uh, would suddenly have as much of a stake in this uh, adventure in this campaign as what the now departed character did, you know. So um, it just you know kind of lost its momentum, and I guess like the the character death was unavoidable. Um, I mean, once we sort of once it happened, it was difficult to go back and re. re jig it, it totally fit with the mechanics of the rules and, this, and the, uh, the assumptions of that particular game, like it's Shadow of the Demon Lord is a horror uh, dark fantasy, so it uh, yeah, it, um, it that's the style of, of play you should expect, and the style of campaign you should expect from it, but um, yeah, I don't know I mean, the uh, uh, the, the problem was, is having a campaign that was so personalized and so 
linked to the story of those characters and their decisions and their struggles and whatnot, to pair that with a game where you can die pretty easily, you know, um, uh, and maybe it wasn't pretty easy. I mean, it was a really difficult encounter, but when character death is there, I mean, it uh, it really disrupted that that particular campaign, and um, I don't know how much of it was that we were all sort of ready to move on to a new game, or I just wasn't interested in trying to rewrite what I had come up with to fit a new characters, but it, it also was the fact that we had a, such a change of, of characters. So that that's a, a situation where I think, you know, by devoting so much to the story to build up towards that, that can really derail a campaign. It doesn't necessarily mean it needs to end it, but when you've been building everything up around this one or two or three particular characters, or at the very least, they play a substantial role in you know what your your final you know epic uh, resolution of the story is going to be. Boy, hmm. And I guess what I if I could have I could what I could have done is just been more clever and figure a way to, to twist that into. And actually, now that I think of it, maybe I did have an idea of what I was going to do. Something involving the afterlife and like we were going to be playing a parallel game in the afterlife as well. I don't know. Um, but in any event, it's, um, it's something to bear in mind that when you've got, you know, uh, if you're implicitly building the char- the story around a particular set of characters and their backstory and their actions and, and whatever, then it's implicit that those characters will not die, uh, at least not in a trivial way, not, not in a death without meaning, you know, or, or in, in the overall story. Um, and like for instance, and I don't mean that they're necessarily gonna like that. That encounter on the back of a dragon was an epic encounter, but none of the parties that were involved in there were particularly, or at least the players did not know their particular role in the thing that those characters had been working towards. If the if the characters had been working towards, you know, and and had found out that they had all these allies who were in support of against you know evil evil Lord Joe, right, and then this person who killed them is a lieutenant of Evil Lord Joe, and he knew that that was the case, and the players knew that that was the case, well, then maybe that is cool. That's a really cool kind of resolution. It sucks for the character. It sucks that you're not going to be able to explore that, that story anymore, but boy, what a what a, a turn. Like the, You never would have expected that. That's, boy, oh boy. What a, what, and it's a good way to justify um, a bad, you know, dice rolls in an encounter after the fact. Um, but in this one, it just felt like a, like a, it didn't necessarily link to the overall, um, like it was just, it was a combat death. And when you're building a story, you're building your campaign around that, um, that kind of like, you know, we're building towards something. There's a, there is going to be a resolution to this in that epic fantasy kind of way. Um, it's, oh, it's really jarring to have a effectively like a combat casualty, you know, like just a random, oh, they caught a stray bullet or caught a stray, you know, falling monk strike on the back of a dragon or as, it, you know, as the case may be. And you can contrast that with the, the games where the, it's assumed that if a character dies, the, the story isn't derailed, you know, you're going to keep on going like those adventure paths, like the uh, mega dungeons, like those um, longer stories published by Wizards of the Coast. So those games, I think, tell you some implicit things about them. And obviously, you know, as DMs, you can always, like, there, there's ways you can push it in one direction or another. But, um, you know, it's an interesting point about Shadow of the Demon Lord, then, is because if you've got a story that's supposed to run those 11 levels or whatnot uh, for your thing, for your character, 
but you've also got a game that has, so there's a story that's going to go over the course of that arc. You've also got a game that has an incredible amount of lethality uh, to it. It's it's an interesting tension between uh, the. I don't know if it's ludo narrative dissonance because I think it, it's ultimately up to you as to how you dictate the story, and the story could be bigger than the players in the same way that like an adventure path or whatever else is. But um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, th- I think that. Uh, if you introduce story-focused elements to that, maybe that does introduce ludonarrative dissonance where, you know, the story we're trying to tell is that your character is important and your character is a valuable part of the story and we'll see it through. But then when you randomly die, that is a... And the mechanics tell you that's what happened. That is different and that is is contrary to what the fictional story is telling you. Is that good or is that bad? I mean, maybe I guess that what that tells me is that maybe I was approaching the way I run Shadow of the Demon Lord incorrectly. It's not designed to play like that. It's not designed to play like a story kind of uh, thing where it's personal to each individual character. It's supposed to be that there's an overarching story that's going on that involves, you know, uh, trying to thwart the Demon Lord and players will come and or characters will come and characters will go over the course of that story like a you know, uh, George R. R. Martin's story, um, where some will die and some will come to replace them. And actually, that makes sense in that game because the amount of modularity for building your character is part of the fun of that game. It's so interesting to build a, you know, weirdo uh, combinations or just, you know, hyper-optimize your character to build a specific, you know, optimized uh, route for your character. Um, maybe that's why it's intended that way. It's, it's so much fun to get a new character together and jump them into the game. Hmm. Interesting. I uh, intend to talk about uh, the uh, implicit rules for death, and I just found myself with a revelation about uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord and how I've been running it. Hmm. Anyway, um, so I think that's, I mean, there's obviously, I mean, not obviously, but I think there likely is an awful lot more to say about the implicit um, rules or the implicit assumptions that are made by running these types of games with... um, or the structures that you choose, whether you're doing one-shots, whether you're doing, you know, uh, pre-written uh, uh, adventure paths where you know you're going to be playing through a certain group. Oh, you know, there is one more, there's one more way that I think it matters, and that's group size. So maybe let me just pause here, and I'll talk about how group size affects uh, character lethality. So I guess the last thing to consider is the size of the party uh, that you're dealing with, because... Um, the bigger the, I mean, obviously the bigger the, um, the party, the, the less that, uh, the loss of one character is going to impact on the overall thrust of the story. And I mean, part of that is because I think that the larger the party, the more the, the focus is on, uh, plot and what the party is doing rather than, you know, what the individual players' interests are or their motivations or, or, you know, whatever, where, what part they're playing in the overall, um, larger campaign, um, which is not always the case, but just, you know, with a, um, group of like, say seven or eight, uh, player characters on a regular basis, it is difficult to give all of them substantial, you know, time in the spotlight. Um, so in that way, a decision to have a group that's larger than that, um, you know, and, and combined with the other factors does give an implicit kind of, um, assessment that, you know, the, the impact of death on, of a character is not going to, uh, grind the story to a halt or grind the, grind the campaign to a halt or anything like that. Uh, whereas a smaller group, conversely, that's, you know, if you've got a group of, uh, three 
two or three players, say, uh, then boy, oh boy, that's going to be a pretty um, cataclysmic uh, event when one of those players dies. You know, and uh, the replacement of that will also likely rep- uh, represent a fairly substantial, not disruption, but um, a fairly substantial, um, not, I mean, changing, I guess, because it's, with a smaller group, it does seem that you're going to be a little more uh, story-focused than plot-focused. And I guess that's not necessarily always true, but I just feel like, you know, the smaller the group the more you have opportunities for those quiet moments that are more character-focused, uh, more role-playing, more, you know, uh, playing into how the, the those individual characters are interacting with the world. Even if you don't, you know, if, you, if you're not a fan of the, uh, like, elaborate backstories or things like that, you're still just, because they're going to have more time to be hanging out in that world and doing things, I think it's just, it lends itself more to the development of that side of the characters by um, just because you've, they've got more time to do that stuff. You can spend more time exploring individual actions, interests, and storylines. So, um, so yeah, so I think that the, that's another factor that plays into uh, mortality. Uh, and the death rules uh, is the size of the uh, party. And I wonder whether, you know, that also means that with a smaller party, it is more important to have those cushions in place right like with a larger party of a game like say starfinder where there is it's it's you know relatively difficult for the characters to actually die um assuming you're not just throwing overwhelming odds against them you know then uh then that's uh you know um then that that might i don't know i don't know if that would make for a different experience or not you know i mean it's um i guess it's just that with more Maybe the lesson there is that with more lethal systems, a bigger party uh, is a a better option because the more players or investigators, if you're playing Call of Cthulhu or or whatever, um, the more of them that are there, the less likely you are to disrupt the overall storyline and the art and the um, you know the momentum of the campaign. Um, the more parties, the more people you've got there. Does that mean you can you can't play high lethality? games with a small party i don't know um i know that i did with small groups of players in um ash uh we ran uh, rats in the walls for a group of two players it was tricky you know it was tricky for the uh for the players uh because they uh you know they, they were so close to uh uh, one wrong round of combat and a couple lost, you know, lost initiative or um, just bad dice results uh, could really wipe out the party pretty easily because there isn't a lot of cushion in that particular game. So, uh, yeah, I guess maybe that that is something to consider. You know, if you're if you're, um, and it may also be why, you know, old school games, old school play of D and D like BX D and D and and other uh, OSR style games, they do lend themselves really well to such big groups because you can't churn through player characters and not worry about the whole campaign coming to a, a, a you know, grinding to a halt. Um, you know, and actually in this section as well too, one thing that dawned on me that I didn't deal with in my previous section, I think this fits under the, Im- the category of both implicit and explicit, is uh, the impact of 
um, random encounters. You know, if you're playing a system that has random encounters and the random encounters run the gamut of, you know, less powerful than the PCs, more powerful than the PCs, equal to the PCs, and they run that full range of what might possibly be out there, um, then uh, I think I think that um, that that also has um, an effect on on Lethal, on you know on on death right like you're you're telegraphing to the players by the by virtue of the the rules you're telling you know by the the explicit rules there will be random encounters there is possible surprise in these random encounters and they may not be something that you are they may not be fair in the sense that they are balanced and something a, a tactical encounter that you can likely um succeed you know at or you can um that you can uh, um overcome um whereas you know so that that's an explicit and then the implicit thing to that is that uh every time you go out into the wilderness or into a into a situation at least where there may be random encounters because you may be playing in a town where you hold you know it's a mega city and that's where all your encounters are going to be that may um trigger uh, random encounters as well but i i think that the that is an implicit part of that is is that you know players need to learn to run away but it also may partly be uh the implicit um uh under or, or i guess the implicit rule or assumption that there's going to be times when you will roll random encounters that you know are just going to be dramatically overpowered that that the players if they if they engage with them are going to get uh if not a tpk then a very close to that right um the players need to be they need to read the encounter better um and that's um I think that's uh, something that is, you know, that that uh, you need to be uh, clear with with players from the get go, right? That there there will be times when you go up, go out into the environment, and there may, you maybe encounter things that will be that you will need to run from. You know, you cannot engage with them. You cannot uh, try and do a tactical retreat. You just got to hope that you suffer the least amount of damage as you can from that. You know, and um, one instance where I'm not sure. And I don't know, like, to be honest, the, the so the death of, of the paladin that I've been talking about this episode, there, the player of that paladin has has seen, there's been a, a, um, a shifting response for him. At first, he thought it was unfair because he didn't think that he, um, you know, he didn't think, he thought that the game just killed him, that there, there was something in the event. And then the more we talked about it, the more he, he acknowledged that, okay, no, there was more than enough in the overall campaign to tell me that this is what was going on. And, um... And he acknowledged also that it wasn't a matter of miscommunication because the two players who were playing those half-brothers, they were actually sitting in the same physical location while the rest of us were playing. So they they both knew what was going on and they had ample opportunity. There wasn't a like bad connection over the wire or something like that. And the player has come around to the idea of that, well, you know, if the other player had just uh, run with everyone else and not insisted on staying behind to see what, what was, you know, to potentially face up against these things... Um, then uh, he wouldn't, you know, his character would not have stayed and he would have, uh, he would not have died. And, um, but I mean, like, regardless of, of the shifting kind of responses I was getting from the player, it, it does speak to, you know, on some level, maybe there was a mis- there was a misunderstanding or a miscommunication. Um, actually, it's a miscommunication. It, it's not, it takes two to tango. It's certainly, if the player wasn't, you know, 
uh, alerted to the uh, to the danger, then there's there is some something um, there's some error on my part as well as as the DM. Though in my defense, all the rest of the party knew what was going on, knew the threat, knew the peril, knew the likely consequences of this. So I'm not sure why that one player elected to stay behind, but um, but in any event, the um, what it speaks to is that it's you know it is important to. Uh, tell, you know, if, if you are, particularly if you've got players who are coming from a background where they're expecting parody encounters, you know, they're expecting uh, things to be, um, you know, to, to, for, for, it's the, um, um, what do you, what's his name? Questing Beast. I can't remember his real name. Uh, he has a great line talking about the difference between combat in old school games and um, combat in, uh, uh, in, um, more modern games, where in old school games combat is war, whereas whereas in modern games combat is sport, um, and um, and I agree with that. Like, I mean, I, I I like that understanding that you know it is a no holds barred kind of thing, and that there isn't going to be a you know quote unquote fair um, encounter necessarily. You know, a fair encounter is a is a um, an un you know intended consequence of a random encounter, not a designed in feature. I mean, this isn't to say that, you know, you're going to make a random encounter table for first level characters. That's going to include an ancient dragon, you know? Um, but it means that there's going to be things that will be quite possibly well out of their league or, or, you know, well out of their league at those levels. And if you make it clear to players, this is the, you know, to the players, not the characters, the players, this is the rules of the game here. You know, we are treating this like a uh, believable, reactive world um, as best we can. There will be, you know, and you need to play your characters accordingly to that. Um, it's worth when players are coming from a, like, say, Pathfinder or even D&D 5th uh, kind of background where there isn't that kind of uh, old school approach um, of you know, uh, random encounters that may result in death. I mean, that, you know, that uh, need to be responded to in a, in a believable way, you know, when recognizing when certain things are out of your, out of your class that you need to run. Um, that needs to be, you know, communicated and, and reemphasized sometimes because a lot of players in, um, I, th- I mean, I think that this is not like, uh, um, necessarily the old days where there's one, you know, one game that everyone plays. Although nowadays you think that maybe that, that might be for some people it's D and D fifth edition. That's the only game they play. And, uh, that's fine. Uh, but for folks who, uh, play in my campaigns, they play a lot of different games, uh, typically. Um, and the, if they're coming from a, a background, like, you know, like, I mean, even with the two examples I've been using throughout this thing, the encounters you 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 meet in Starfinder, you can assume that those are balanced encounters, that they are going to be fair, because the the game mechanics don't function if I throw an un if you do get into combat with an uns, with a um, an overmatched uh, enemy or at least too far out of your your the range of your capability, it's just going to like the mechanics will will make them. So they will annihilate the player characters and they will not have a chance to respond really. So that, I, I just, the mechanics of that prevent me from doing those kind of overmatched encounters. Um, and the players can expect that. That it's not, you know, they're not going to find something where it's, you know, um, it's a tactical encounter that is very likely to end in a tactical encounter, uh, you know, t- t- yeah, tactical, um, you know, combat. But they've, you know, uh, I don't know, I'm kind of losing my train of thought here. What I what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that either coming from a, a background where the rules require you 
to to provide balanced encounters because the game doesn't work otherwise. You know, uh, Pathfinder 2 is like that uh, to a degree, um, not to a degree, to a very large degree. So is D&D 4th, so is Starfinder, um, so is a lot like a D&D uh, th- 3, 3rd, and forward. Um, I'm trying to think, 5th fifth, is a little less so, you can get away with a little bit more there, but I mean, if um, that does, you know, um, it, it is difficult to, to uh, have lower level characters uh, when they're facing in a tactical encounter an upper level uh, adversary or an upper challenge rating uh, adversary, it's difficult for them to to deal with that. Um, whereas in in old school games, you know, um, I think it's easier to try and sneak away or avoid or or just flee or or whatever. Um, and I don't know if I've got any metrics to back that up. Actually, now that I think of it, um, running away, you know, one one of the things that is uh, um, is different between some old school games is when they do have baked in rules for running away. Um, you know, like the uh, Adventure Conqueror King has that, has rules for escaping, you know, and uh, I've adapted those for uh, some games I've run recently. And I don't know if modern games have that stuff necessarily. They don't have it because especially games like uh, Pathfinder, Starfinder, whatnot, um, they have taught, you know, there's tactical movement and you can kind of look at the movement rate between the respective uh, adversaries and you, that'll dictate who's going to be able to get away from who. Um, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, that's another factor that makes it difficult to do the, those kind of overmatched encounters uh, randomly uh, in those style of games. The rules don't really support that style of play, whereas the old school games, I guess, do uh, more so. Um, although that makes me think that, you know, I could probably design uh, some pretty good um, escape rules for Starfinder because of the way that they set difficulty numbers. Uh, that would hopefully be a lot of fun. Maybe that's the next thing I want to work on. But I'm getting way, way off the point. There there was a point, and I'm now six yards over from where that point was. So I guess what I'm saying is that um, for, for those elements, you know, if you're going to embracing those elements that have both an explicit, like, like random encounters, that have an explicit rule mechanic where the DM will be rolling randomly to see whether there uh, an encounter happens or not, and then rolling randomly to see what shows up, um, and whether there's a surprise on, on the part of either, you know, uh, either party, uh, or, uh, and the, the, the random distance at which that encounter occurs, I think that that needs to be clear to the players uh, so that there is not a, they can plan accordingly, you know, they, and prepare themselves both in the game and in, uh, you know, as the players as well. So they're not like, well, that was bullshit. You know, we suddenly had uh, X thing happen and I just got the shit kicked out of me. And I think that, um, you know, in, in fairness for, for that player, uh, I have not, I, I know in a recent other game, uh, we had more random encounters and because of the the distance I was setting those encounters at it was basically always a guaranteed combat encounter so that particular player has not had an opportunity to see the way these overmatched random encounters can be fun which is to say that you see them at a distance you surprise them and you can decide how you want to respond to them do you want to risk taking down that you know uh that um caravan of uh you know, hobgoblins transporting a shit ton of gold or bandits who are fresh from a hunt. Do you want to go in and interfere with these guys or do you want to let them, you know, carry on their way and, and just not get involved with that fight? Um, and that's something that uh, I think is uh, is also maybe important to, to uh, up emphasize not only the uh, 
I'm getting more into the topic of like random encounters than I am on death stuff here, but let's follow this thought through to the conclusion. I think it's also important to emphasize the fun elements of those random encounters. You know, random encounters by virtue of, of the, if you're playing them in the old school way, you're also going to be randomly generating uh, treasure afterwards. And that can result in some really, really fun, un, you know, unexpected results where you find some amazing piece of, uh, you know, magic item uh, or amazing magic item or a, a huge amount of loot or whatever on those things just because, you know, it uh, it just so happened to happen that way. And uh, to roll out that way, you know, the dice in a random encounter, uh, I think, cut both ways. And it's important to uh, for those... Even though you're saying you're emphasizing to the players, look, you know, you may get some really negative consequences uh, from this in the sense that uh, this thing could kill you and you guys could die on a, a bad random encounter. While any time you're leaving the safety of whatever your environment is and you're leaving yourself exposed to this, there is the possibility of death. And not by virtue of, of you having to pick what kind of combat encounter you get into, by virtue of having those combat encounters thrust upon you. If you are surprised, like what happened in my Ash game, uh, you know, if, if they were surprised and the enemy get to go gets to go first and then they get to go first again, that's going to be a real difficult position from which to be fighting. But the upside to it is... If you defeat those enemies, we randomly generate the treasure too, and who knows what you'll find on those things? You know that's the crazy fun of um, of these games. We found a in our F, uh, Reavers of Tula game, uh, the players came across in at this is when they were about second or third level, depending on the character class they were playing, and they found an insanely good magic item, a plus three a cloak of resistance, which effectively adds plus three to all your saving throws and plus three to all your uh, AC, to your melee and missile AC. So amazing magic item for such a low-level uh, character. They got a crap ton of XP from it because of the the way that XP works in, uh, in Ash and in other old-school games where you get XP for recovering magic treasures. The upside to those random encounters, to the, you know, facing stuff that is overmatching you is... The potential for you know uh, randomly good and beneficial windfalls, uh, so maybe that's something that's some way to make sure to present it, you know. And in the same way, to end up, try and end this on a positive, after talking about death so much, that's part of the fun with all of these other, you know, all the other elements of the mechanics and the other implications. You know, um, the implication that the story will go on despite the loss of a character. Uh, in some of these other games in like a Pathfinder Adventure Path or a long-term thing, that means you still get to engage in the story, you know? And you get to engage with the character generation system in a lot of these games. And um, unless you're playing Pathfinder where every level you're making a whole bunch of choices for your character, and I don't mean a whole bunch, but I mean in comparison to other games, uh, you get to make a lot of decisions. The character generation system is largely going to be sitting there doing nothing um, unless you have to make a new character. You know, and if you're playing a game like Shadow of the Demon Lord, where you get to combine a number of different cool elements, like your, you know, your ancestry and your, um, what is it, your novice path, your expert path, your master path, um, lots of cool stuff. Your your different uh, magical schools. Um, there's tons of really cool things you get to do when you're making those characters, and you really only get to engage those again, um, you know, in a in a complete way when you lose a character. So. You know, and and I will say that when uh, for the players who died in my or whose characters died in the Ash game on on uh, Saturday, they had their new characters entered into Roll Twenty before we finished the session, which was awesome. And they both seemed really excited about their new characters, you know, and how they're going to fit them into the story and and what sort of you know factions or factors factions they were going to try and attract themselves to be. And uh, 
so that was really you know that's another positive is you get a chance to to engage with the um you know with those players and and finally with respect to the mechanics the mechanics cut both ways you know so the cool thing about ash is if the players get or and and a lot of old school games like it more so the AD&D, like the stuff that gives you weapon mastery and stuff like that, where you get these really cool, to degree kind of glass cannony kind of things, where like if the if the sword, if the, you know, the tables were turned and they were having to attack themselves, or they're attacking like mirror doppelgangers, they could very well take themselves down in one or two hits because of just how much damage they're pumping out. Um, that's really badass for the players, the play, uh, for the character, or for the players, because the player characters are are able to dish out the the enemies they're fighting. Uh, they are subject to the same rules for lethality that the player characters are. So the players are able to dish out crap tons of damage and carve their way through these uh, adversaries or, you know, bind their wills to them with, by virtue of their magic or annihilate them with their magic or, you know, force them to slumber so their throats can be slit by virtue of, of their, you know, how lethal the, the, that and how deadly those spells can be. And, um, and that's cool, you know. So, I mean, it's not just that... Uh, the negative of like, oh, well, here's all the negative things that come from when you have a character die and whatnot. The the upside to that is if you're playing fair both ways, uh, and maybe that's the, the way I'll end this, is that, you know, I talk about combat being sport rather than, uh, you know, war rather than sport. Well, it still is a game though, you know, and war is not fucking fair in, in a, at all. You know, like there's, uh, it, it's rare you're going to have the even matched army versus even matched army. Uh, and I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to, you know, demonstrate my ignorance of military history <laughs> might give you any examples here. But, you know, the, overall, because everyone is playing by the same rules in these old school games, um, you may get a, a random encounter where your characters are going to steamroll the adversaries. Uh, the player characters get to dish out a, a crap ton of damage and make use of spells that are a lot more powerful, comparatively speaking, than their more modern equivalents. So even though the mechanics are, you know, uh, definitely make death of, of player characters a very real thing, the flip side to that is, is they are deadly engines of death themselves because those same rules apply to the other side. So there is a more, there is more fairness taken as a whole uh, than there is, you know, um, you know, over, over, the, over the, everyone is, is subject to the same dangerous rules um, who's in the game. So, you know, even though a tactical encounter is war, the overall game is still a sport. And that's why it's fun, I guess. So, anyway, um, that's been a kind of, not a kind of, an extraordinarily rambling, divert, you know, uh, third uh, segment to this. So maybe I'll, I'll uh, pull the pin before I, got, I start talking about something else completely unrelated, and I will call this an episode. <laughs> So that's it. That's my episode on death. Um, if uh, you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding this very, very rambly uh, session, uh, please don't hesitate to shoot me a message on uh, Anchor, or uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Dungeon Musings, uh, or you can uh, shoot me an email. My email address is dungeonmusings at gmail.com. Um, Anyway, until next time, um, thanks uh, very much for uh, listening. Thanks to everyone who's uh, reached out with um, voice messages or emails or found me on Twitter. I, I greatly appreciate hearing from you guys. And I hope that um, this very rambly episode has helped. Uh, I, I think that the I should have had a more clear idea of what it was specifically I wanted to say. Uh, 
with this one, but I mean, I hope that at least some of the ideas I've tossed out there have given you some food for thought to uh, think about how you're handling death uh, explicitly, implicitly, or, or whatever in your campaigns. Um, and until next time, happy gaming.